Hello and welcome to Let Them Eat Cake, episode 27. I am not in this one, so our hosts will be John and Ace. So, what are we talking about this week? This week we talked to a volunteer from Ukraine. Ace can tell us a little bit more about it. The volunteer we talked to is Force X Canada. He helps run a foundation that gets medical supplies, um, military supplies, things of that nature into Ukraine. Uh, he was over there for quite a while, just kind of moving supplies around with different volunteer groups there. And now he's back in Canada and he's hoping to redeploy and hopefully do so with some with some extra help. So, yeah, we talked to him about his experiences in Ukraine and witnessing the war firsthand, what it's like trying to get supplies through that area, uh, just kind of the logistics of it all, everything from like the types of fucked up cars they might be using all the way to what what it's what it's really like over there and for for different groups of people who might be serving in the military so it's it's a really interesting episode you guys should check it out before we get into the episode let's go through some important headlines in uh hiroshima japan there is an important conference called the g7 if you don't know what that is just a little bit important it's just a it's just a global elites meeting. So the G20 has normally been the one that's more important. It's the top 20 economies. But because Russia and China have insisted on making themselves pariah states, just like how they have empowered NATO, they've empowered the G7. This one was at Hiroshima. We got to see Joe Biden lay a wreath at the atomic bomb memorial, still not apologizing for it. But, you know, we'll put a wreath down to say that we'll maintain peace. One of the important things that's happening is, you know, some aid to Ukraine, different sanctions on Russia. But one of the things that's undercovered is that they have further expanded what there's basically is their counter to China's Belt and Road Initiative. The first one was basically a failure. There's a European sector to it. It's like a gateway let me check real global gateway is what the eu version of this is and like it's like different like uh tech companies and things like that but the eu side of it has basically just been what eu does is no innovation just reinvesting on shit that you're already like building but joe biden made some very interesting proposals to hear that nobody it seems to be covering every like us. I looked at Australia coverage. They took his little tidbit at the end about maintaining Indochina peace, right? It's because everyone brought that up, but very small amount of Joe Biden's speech. The main part of it about his speech was developing infrastructure in Africa to counter China. So then China was really not happy about that because the they got called bullies and coercive and things like that. And then at the end of the conference, Taiwan came up again, and China really got upset about that. So they've now called for the ambassador to come out because they're so angry about it. Because I've been saying a lot how... So actually, the specific thing Joe Biden said is that he's it's developing and expanding on the economic corridors. Obviously, that's what America cares about. So if you look at you know areas where trade goes around, that's where Joe Biden says we're going to build the infrastructure. But the meeting, they brought in like basically capitalists from different companies to meet with the governments there. So there's a whole like press conference, real boring shit, where they talk about like how they're going to build 5G towers and stuff. The thing that Biden is doing, it's PGII. It's the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. So they founded it last year. 
but now it's kind of taken effect where the Ukraine war has like kind of developed after a whole business cycle, you know, that's the big part about it is, is, uh, if you want to look it up, he's got a whole thing and, uh, it says it's, uh, key component to the Biden doctrine. And so he, the first one he proposed was the, uh, build back better world. That one has now become this because I guess that build didn't do very well. I guess it didn't succeed. So now it's turned into this, that because they are specifically talking about how they want to not build dependencies, right? So if somebody is dependent on you, there's going to be resentment, you know? Well, it's still on China. Uh, keep it a funny sort of uh, connected episode today. Um, uh, China, well, an apparent uh, Chinese-backed spy group called Vault Typhoon has hit Microsoft and Guam. Uh, the Chinese have obviously come out and said, oh, it's a disinformation campaign because that's you know, every country's excuse when something is blown out of the water. Um, but the, the Five Eyes, which is an intelligence cooperation between Australia, Canada, New Zealand, America, and the UK have said that they're very confident that it's this and that they're state-backed, um, which explains why China is flailing. Um, they say it's one of the largest uh, espionage uh, espionage attacks on major infrastructure in US history, which is kind of interesting. Um, it targeted US military bases and uh, Microsoft, obviously. So it's, it's um, kind of interesting. It just seems... Uh, funny timing, doesn't it? With the G7, and just uh, kind of curious, kind of kind of curious. But um, just reading, uh, they're saying they weren't ready for it, which is interesting. Um, you would think that they would, like they're but open, they're saying it's also going to be. They weren't ready. Yeah, pretty much. They're going to say um, Microsoft said that mitigating this attack could be challenging which is a little concerning. <laughs> so, um, but China comes out and says, uh, relevant reports from Western agencies have no proof, which is the typical response from China. So it's nothing too out of the normal there, but we may see cyber attacks stepping up. I mean, it makes sense. Information warfare is pretty strong at the moment. Yeah, so just reading a little bit here, it says that the purposes were unstated and they were using living off the land techniques. So I imagine that they were planted and were waiting. Um, that's what that sounds like. Yeah, they say it could be uh, in an effort to map critical infrastructure, which <laughs> that is concerning, but yeah. These are all intelligence agencies talking, so you can't really trust anything that they say. At the end of the day, when it when it happens, it happens, and we'll find out in time. But that's happening. Cyber attacks, yay! <laughs> While we're on the topic of China, of the Chinese, um, the Calabrian Mafia, known as Nadrangheta, which is currently the most powerful Italian mafia in the world. Uh, more powerful than the Sicilian Cosa Nostra, which everyone is kind of familiar with. 
just for popular culture and whatnot. But uh, Drangheta is um, basically one of the largest mafias, organized crime syndicates, whatever you want to call it, in the world, and arguably the largest in Europe. Uh, early this month, around May 3rd, a, um, an operation was carried out by Europol. One of the things that this investigation kind of revealed is that they were using Chinese, like, shadow banks, quote-unquote, which is basically like they were just kind of using a Chinese wire transfer system to um, uh, illegally move their money around and cover their tracks. So it's kind of interesting when you mention, like, hackers in China, while the other story I'm going with is, is talking about Chinese banks being shady. <laughs> what they did is they, they arrested about 132 people connected with the, uh, with the organization, who is uh, very well known for crimes such as uh, exporting, uh, exporting, uh, sorry, drug trafficking, human trafficking, money laundering, things of that nature. Uh, the, it was said by like uh, the officials in Europol that basically they found out how they'd been smuggling uh, cocaine and other drugs from the ports of countries like Brazil, etc., out to places like. Colombia, I'm sorry, out to places like Europe and Australia. And uh, they've been basically laundering all their money through like ice cream shops, restaurants, car washes, etc. One of what I think one of the um, uh, the biggest uh, connects to like this whole thing that kind of exposed a lot of people was an ice cream shop that was being used for money laundering in Germany, I believe. So yeah, there was a uh, there was more than a thousand police in Germany, for example, alone, just searching up dozens upon dozens of homes, uh, seizing a bunch of assets, and 108 people in Italy alone were arrested. So it, it's a pretty big hit to these guys. Once again, if I sorry I didn't mention this earlier, but they are from Calabria, which is a southern port in Italy, like a southern port city in Italy. Uh, again, it's, 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 a, seems like they put a lot of time in this investigation. It was a three-year investigation that was, uh, spanning about like 12 different countries, I believe, to Italy, Germany, Belgium, Spain, Slovenia, Romania, Brazil, Panama. It's just, they say it's a large hit to the organization. And I think we'll just have to wait and see because it wasn't, it wasn't even a, like a week ago when something came up that they discovered a bunch of cocaine and I believe Ecuador being hidden in bananas that was on its way to Armenia. And it was like millions of dollars worth of cocaine. And it was, um, uh, it was connected back to the Calabrian ports, which is where the Drangheta does their operations. So that was, that was kind of weird to see, even though they kind of claimed that this is like a huge hit to them, but, but who knows? We'll, we'll just have to wait and see what happens from here. And yeah. That's headlines. For this week, we're going to go into our interview with Forsex that's about TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care. You can learn what to do when you get shot in the chest and stuff like that. Fun. <laughs> Step one, panic. We have a weapon more powerful than the British Empire. And that weapon is our refusal to bow to any order but our own. Any institution but our own. My name is Jack Groot, like the tree from that stupid movie. And I, uh, I run an organization called Force X Canada, 
which started originally as uh, just posting war footage and updates and news um, coverage of the war crimes Russia had been committing in Ukraine from Telegram to Instagram. And then uh, I met Brandon, also known as Ukraine TBIC on Instagram, and he started his page. And he motivated me to do more than, you know, just posting and watching and glorifying war, so to speak. So I started, I made the website, we started making merch, hopefully to help send funds to him and raise awareness. And then through Brandon, I met uh, Oleg, who runs the organization Forever with Ukraine. And we became really good friends, mostly because I was one of the only people over on this side of the world with a broken sleep cycle. So whenever he wanted someone to talk to, I was available for him. And we became best friends. And uh, he gave me the opportunity to go over to Ukraine and join him in his work. So that's how I got there. Um, beforehand, back in high school in Canada, we have what's known as the co-op program. So it allows you to work at a normal job. And the only paying job in that program is joining the Canadian forces. So in Canada, you can join the reserves at the age of 16 or 16 high school credits. So that's what I did. And I was in the reserves at a combat engineer regiment until I injured uh, the discs in my spine again, which has been a reoccurring issue in my whole life, which then led to me medically releasing. And uh, after that, I spent a lot of time just keeping one foot in the realm of the military world, keeping up with medical technologies, tactics, conflicts, so to speak. And so through that, I I kind of came into the world of TCCC a lot sooner than most people and was uh, up to date on those protocols and technologies, tourniquets. Can you explain and... what TCCC is for people? Yeah, for sure. So TCCC is Tactical Combat Casualty Care so or a March protocol, which is a system that you would use to deal with a casualty, whether it be in military or first responding, anything like that. And so I've been carrying tourniquets and chest seals and IFACs with me since I was about 17 years old. All right. So now I'm 27. So it's been about a decade of me carrying these sorts of things and paying attention to that sort of technology. Um, so do you want to talk about your recent trip to Ukraine then? You want to get into that? Oh yeah, we can definitely do that. The flight over in itself was a, was a whole story. I'm going to be honest. Like, I booked the cheapest possible airline, which was Condor, which is cool. You know, it's nice to save money, but the airplane food probably would never chance it. I, I hear that's just a general rule, but the food on the plane this time kind of talked to me when I looked at it. But, you know, I'm trying to be a responsible adult on my first time going overseas alone. I figured, oh, you, you need to eat, feed yourself. So I ate it and I ended up with food poisoning. So I spent uh, an eight hour flight, you know, yakking, hating my life, got to Frankfurt. Um, what was supposed to be an hour and a half layover due to delays turned into a 15 minute layover and I had to navigate the Frankfurt airport, walking around, looking like a zombie, dying of malaria, puking in every garbage can I could find. I got to finally got to like the gate up to like the door of the airplane and the pilots standing there looking at me like, are you okay to fly? And I'm like, bro, I don't have a choice. Like I got to get on this plane, dude. I can't just let you leave. I got to go. Got on the plane, passed out, landed in Poland and met up with another volunteer that was on their way to Ukraine and checked into a hotel and just passed out for the next nine hours. It was absolutely horrendous flying over there. But after, you know, 
we got there. It was, it was good to go. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we spent, I think it was in a day, a day or two in Poland because uh, we were waiting for another person that was coming over to volunteer. And then they arrived and we had what you might call a, a conflict of personality. This person was advocating for paying 600 US dollars for a ride from Warsaw to Lviv, which might just sound in a general sense, absolutely. So stupid. this, this, so no, keep going. Actually, I, I kind of want to hear this part out. <laughs> so, so this person had just landed, they made us wait a whole extra day and their, their argument was we should pay the 600 US dollars for a car ride to Lviv. Which a car ride that we didn't know if all our shit would fit in. They were like, if I show up and your stuff doesn't fit, you're paying me $500. All of these like caveats. I was like, that's stupid. And so I called Oleg and we were having a conversation. It's like, why would you do that? You can take a train. It's like 20, 30 bucks. Or I paid $50 to get a ride to Kiev, right? Like you can find these options or there's, there's free options like other volunteer groups that are already going from Poland to Ukraine, right? There's all these options. So we had, uh, we had this conflict, a rather large argument, and they decided these two volunteers were gonna pay uh, 300 US dollars a piece to take their ride, which was fine. You know, you do what you wanna do. And so I ended up staying with all my shit. Got uh, my friend Morgan, who's been my best friend, my multi-tool, you know, the number one person in my back pocket helped book me some Airbnbs from across the world. We got a ride across town there, hopped in. And um, another foreign volunteer from Canada named Brett introduced me to a, a Polish fella named Yannick, who had done something, I think, like 32 trips from Warsaw to Mykolaiv since the beginning of the war, delivering, you know, food, whatever was needed. Uh, medical supplies and so on and they were like oh yeah we'll give you a ride in it's no problem so i met up with them the next day and they picked up all my shit and then we went and loaded up uh, i think three or four sprinter vans at warehouses full of pallets of food and you name it and uh drove over to the border there stayed in a, i think like a hostel or something for the night just a cute little fucking cottage type deal drove across the border the next day and we were in like it was no problem so there was a lot of drama just to end up being right, if that makes sense. No border checkpoints? There, Well, like, we had to go through the border, but it was it was super chill. Because, like I said, like, this group had done 30-something uh, trips at this point. So they had all their paperwork. They just, like, buried all of my shit under the food because they were like, your stuff looks super military. We'll just bury it. They're not going to check. And they didn't. And they just let us through. I think it was maybe at most an hour. When you get through the border, where are you going next? Do you go into the front? Well, that wasn't fully determined where I was going. Originally, I was going to go to Kiev and then meet up with a group of foreign trainers. But that argument in Poland had some some ripple effects that caused some staff changes in that organization. And... Um, I ended up getting dropped off in Venezia where Oleg was going to come pick me up and we were going to go join uh, some volunteers from a hometown of his near Ivano Frankisk that do deliveries about every two weeks to frontline units. So what kind of deliveries are you actually doing? It was, uh, so Oleg's been delivering and supplying 
uh, uniforms, boots, like military equipment, right? Uh, thanks to a donor named Josh in the States, who's an absolute legend that works at a, a supply store called Bradley's. Um, he's been helping get us multi-cam uniforms of every size, raincoats, winter clothing, thermals, socks, boots, helmets, you name it. This dude has been getting it for us like on the cheap, if not the free. He's been getting it donated by working with contacts and military bases and in the military community. Like, this dude has got us probably three, $400,000 of uniforms that we've supplied. And that's what Oleg was doing. So that's what I was going with them to do. So that's, as you see there, a picture of our warehouse. And that's that shit fills and empties up maybe every two to three weeks, right? Like it's absolutely insane. It gets delivered by people like Oleg or me or other volunteers, um, local workers, local, uh, like older guys that aren't in the military, but have family members or kids that are, or just local community that are in the military. They create these communities in their towns where they will supply meals for weeks worth, um, needed equipment. If the soldiers have something they need to buy, they'll order it to their families. And then the families give it to these groups and these groups will go deliver it to the units from their hometowns. Right. And there's all these little communities from each hometown supplying individual units with people from their hometowns, which is like one of those incredible things that you don't see from the outside that when you find out about, you get like more of an idea as to why they're able to win this war and why they're doing so well. Yeah. It's like supply chain issues. Like, um, you know, one of those, like people always think about like the post-apocalypse type stuff. And it's like, how am I going to get the medication I need? And it's like, you'd be surprised how like, well, you can organize stuff just like from, you know, forward operation and stuff. Yeah. It's insane. Like, and they're just normal people, right? Like that's, I think that's the most important thing to get across in this whole experience is that like a lot of this is just normal people. Right? Like not all of the groups doing training or logistics work or volunteering are high speed X Delta guys, right? They're not all veterans. They're not all SWAT. They're not all EMTs. Like a lot of people are normal people that felt a calling and found a way to go help. And then through experience, they've learned over time, they've been able to increase the help they can give. How do you think the U.S. military feels watching their volunteer numbers continue to fall while Ukraine's getting all this free help? You think they're upset about it? You think they're jealous? I, don't know. I think it's it's like such a complicated issue. Like Canada's recruitment numbers, bro. Like it's just it's such a mess overall because it's such a a jumble fuck with everything societally. And I think like if if we had to like step back and just look at it from like a a really bird's eye point of view, I would say very simply, the biggest difference is that Ukrainians, foreigners in Ukraine, everybody there is very united, right? It's a very simple cause and that is victory, right? So every day you wake up, as long as you're working towards that goal, you, you know what you're doing, you have a purpose and you've done something. And nobody that you run into is trying to work against that goal. Everybody's working to the same thing, unlike here, where we have, you know, political division, all sorts of fucking arguments over the most minuscule or relevant shit in our day-to-day -day lives. What kind of like would you say struggles you encounter when when delivering these supplies? Like do you do you, are the cars you're delivering in them quite old and break down often? Are there like uh 
besides the border stuff, like what kind of, what kind of just like kind of like everyday things that you guys just kind of find like, oh fuck, I got to deal with this today when you're over there. Okay, bro. The car we were working with originally was a Nissan Cuba star. I think that thing cost like maybe 500 bucks or something like that. Like Jesus. it worked, but what a bucket. You know what I mean? Like there's a saying among the volunteer community over there that like, volunteer vehicles are the bottom of the bucket, right? It's like the absolute scum scraped off the bottom of the barrel, generally speaking. Um, a large reason of that is a huge portion of the four by four vehicles over in Europe and the Ukraine area have been purchased and then brought to the military and a lot of circumstances blown up or disabled. So the market there is getting really thin. Um, another issue is like having the funding, right? It's a lot easier to buy a $500 hoopty than it is to go buy a couple thousand dollar Nissan Pajero when you're working off like a personal credit card or savings or whatever like that. Um, a main, like a huge problem that we ran into a lot, fucking potholes, man. I don't know how many stories I posted of us having flat tires. There's that piece of shit car right there. I hate that thing. Bro, so many flat tires. We dented rims. Like the roads on the way to the front get progressively worse like the west side of the country great it's normal it's totally normal roads but there's all these like little mini highways that have just like fallen apart over time and especially now right in the last year plus of war like fixing roadways in the east of the country is not exactly the priority and then you have, yeah the transit department is on vacation yeah like some like highways you have like these tank tracks from mechanized divisions going down the highways in the summer and shit that like crushes the asphalt and turns it almost into like a mohawk that's sometimes a foot or two feet high that'll just tear your car in half. Like those are things you definitely got to watch out for. It's wild. Like driving at night, there's not road lights. So like mm. everybody's got their high beams on and shit. You're playing dodge the pothole. Luckily there's not deer to run into. So that's convenient. Oh, that's, that's, makes things a lot easier for sure yeah <laughs> yeah no deer it's super nice um like there's a lot of block posts but like generally if you're part of a like a, a proper ukrainian organization you're gonna have um a ukrainian-based volunteer id which is the sort of thing that'll help validate you and get you through block posts a lot simpler so that helps negate that issue also you know having a foreign passport helps a hell of a lot they love seeing Canadians, Americans, people from Britain, you know, wherever. Um, NATO nations, they love that shit. Um, how uh, how does uh, does it work good for their like propaganda to have like NATO nations in there, or just uh, just reinforces their spirit? I, I think it's I think it's good for a lot of things, right? Like, I think knowing um, you've got people from like a NATO nation giving you training is something that like the young generations of soldiers, they really, really, really love, right? Like they are like sponges when it comes to listening and absorbing information. Like there's definitely a generational disconnect, generally speaking, between the, the older generations and the younger ones, but like the younger soldiers, they are absolutely incredible to teach. And there's nothing more they want than to learn knowledge of how to save their friends and take the enemy's lives. You know what I mean? It started with logistics. And then um, it transitioned into this through some open opportunities. 
Um, at this point, Oleg had done probably 500 to 1,000 hours of interpreting for TCCC in medical courses. So you could argue he's as qualified as anybody to instruct those classes. And once he started instructing them, it was, you can see, like, this dude's got such a depth of fucking knowledge in medical. It's absolutely incredible. Little tricks on how to, you know, apply tourniquets or apply extra tension to certain junctional wounds, ways to carry casualties, just all these little minute details, little things you don't think about until you've been in the field for a long time. Like this guy's just got absolutely incredible knowledge and he can just stand there. He just spits it out. Like it's nothing. He doesn't need a prepared plan or anything like that. So when I joined up with them, I had a, a small understanding of TCCC, you know, enough to do it if needed, but I wasn't fully confident in my ability to teach. So that's why a lot of these photos, you don't see me, right? I was taking photos. I was learning the same as these soldiers was gaining more knowledge, becoming more confident in my ability to instruct people to train lives, right? I don't want to be a reason that somebody does something wrong. You were just kind of saying earlier, like you noticed, like, like, for example, when you were in Western Ukraine, just, and then go as you got closer to the front, the roads got worse, things like that. What other differences did you notice kind of going across the country? So like we, the first day when Oleg picked me up, we went down on the Southeast to a place called Huliapola which is about a kilometer from the enemy. It's near Zaporizhia, if I remember correctly. And uh, like that was really cool, to be honest. Like, absolutely incredible soldiers. Um, they were telling us a story about, I think the day before, earlier that day, I'm not 100% sure in the translation, like a tank had been coming into town and was just harassing the shit out of them, firing like shrapnel rounds into the buildings and fucking with them. But like when we got there, you definitely couldn't tell that they'd been harassed with a tank for the last few days you know what i mean like it's just like the kindest most incredible loving fucking people and like there's there's artillery and shit going off but as somebody who's never been in that position definitely never in a conventional war zone or a modern war zone for that matter it sounds absolutely psychotic but like i wasn't scared you know like you end up being incredibly confident around right you're you're kind of just there the vibe in the, of the people you're with yeah yeah and like when you're around like 100 dudes that are just happy and living life and they're in the moment like you you don't notice the fucking artillery and the bullshit in the background you know what i mean right right it's it's you, almost surreal but it's truly like a beautiful fucking experience like if there was something i could bottle and sell that I know would get people involved. It's that. And so I think from Huliapola, we went to like Zaporizhia. And then from there, we went into Bakhmut and delivered a bunch of medical supplies to a hospital there that was specializing in uh, like brain injuries and TBIs and things like that, which was kind of cool to see. It was like a really old, like Soviet style hospital. I assume it doesn't fucking exist anymore if I had to guess. Because it's been bombed into the rubble. Yeah, it's just like most of that shit doesn't exist. Like at the time, it was all like surrounded and covered by trees, and there was like all sorts of foliage cover. I'm gonna just guess that's not the case now. Well, speaking speaking of hospitals, actually, uh, I don't I don't know like how many hospitals you may have visited in your time there, but the the military hospitals, just general hospitals you visited there, like how was how was the condition of them? Were they were they in de like decent condition? Where was the supply working? Well, it seemed pretty good. Uh, the staff seemed really experienced. There wasn't like it wasn't like a chaotic environment, right? Like everything, especially 
this was early Bakhmut, so to like, so to speak. It was the air raid sirens are constantly going on and shit's blowing up fucking everywhere all the time. But it wasn't today's Bakhmut. But they were, they seemed absolutely professional. You know what I mean? Um, supply wise, there's definitely always been a deficit of like trauma materials. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they have like, rooms full of ibuprofen. Like, that's cool, but we don't need ibuprofen. What we need right. is chest seals <laughs> or fucking like trauma dressings, you know, collars for necks, fucking stretchers, whatever it might be. So there's definitely been like a massive deficit in certain circumstances for things like that. But I think a lot of like small groups have been trying to fill those gaps. A lot of Ukrainians have been trying to fill those gaps. The units themselves spend their own money on it, which is, you know, it's a very NATO thing to have to do. Spend your own money on your own shit. Um, So I think we might have visited, I think I only went to three or four hospitals. There was like the one in Bakhmut. Uh, I think we might have stopped at another one out in the east. And then there was one or two in Kiev that we stopped at. We did like a, a blast training and fueled transfusion course at a hospital there. And that, like, it was pretty, I'd say it was pretty normal hospital. Like, didn't strike me as anything different than here. The parking lot was absolute trash. But again, that's kind of like a normal hospital. I mean, you didn't have to pay for the parking, did you? No. There and you I go. guess that's a there's a huge shit. difference. It didn't cost me seventy five dollars <laughs> to park didn't there. Co- didn't cost you fucking yeah. I guess that's a huge plus, you know. I'll park in a shitty parking lot if I could park there for free. <laughs> yeah, and like in Ukraine, like if if the grass is the only spot, motherfuckers are like, I don't park on the grass. I don't give a shit. Like <laughs> right, right. They do what yeah. they got to do. It's great. Could you actually? Because like you, you've been to. Did you say you've been to Back Moon? Yeah. When I look on maps, it looks like there's not even a road into there. So how does how exactly does one get in and out of back moon? All right, let me zoom in on the map and see if I can try to remember. Well, so I've been to Bakhmut in there once, and then uh, the last time I was close was, I want to say, maybe like November, and we stopped in a town called Ivanovsky or something like that, which is just outside of it which might be a name you're seeing a bit more now because that town's starting to get hit as the territory encloses. So usually you would go like up in through there and down in, or you could go, uh, I think through Chassid Yar down into Bakhmut. So it wasn't uh, too bad. Um, but cro- like we had to cross the city to go drop off supplies to another unit in the city. And that was very much like crossing a line because we went through a, a block post, like a big checkpoint, and on the other side, as we're going down the highway, coming down the other side of the highway is a car smoking, just like plumes of black smoke because the back of it was on fire and a, a fucking trail of ambulances with their lights on, just going hard as shit. And it was like a really sobering experience, especially after, you know, all the previous places where I said you didn't notice it, that was instantly you notice it. And so... Oleg and I were like, oh, fuck, this is different. And I threw my plate carrier, my helmet on. Um, like every little block post or the little like snake curves you would go through, there was blown up fucking cars and shit in them. It was a very, very different environment even then to most of the other areas. That might have still been like my first or second day in the country. So I was still really fucking green at that point. But you, you noticed it. 
Like there was definitely a shift. Um, I wouldn't say the soldiers were any more nervous, but I was definitely being a bit more of a bitch about it. So they've been saying for, I don't know, months now that it's going to fall tomorrow. So how did it look when you were there? At the time, they, I don't even think the Russians were like within the borders of the city, right? They were still blowing up the blocks on the outside of town and shit like that. But they were definitely bombing the hell out of that place. Like the air raid sirens were going the whole time. You could hear IDF coming in the whole time. Um, it wasn't, it's not like the thing with artillery and rockets, people are always like, is it dangerous? And da, 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 da. It's, it's kind of like winning the fucking lottery, right? Like if you get hit with a shell or a rocket, like you're, I don't want to say lucky, but, you know, you're unlucky at that point. Like, the chances of that happening, it's kind of like a shark attack. Like, it's it's not something, like, you can focus on. If it happens, it happens. So, that was, like, I guess a place where it felt a little bit more like it might happen. Because, like, we, uh, when we worked the 72nd out near Pokrovsk in eastern Donbass, like, there was constantly shelling going on we were like uh, 20 30 kilometers from the zero line at that point but it didn't feel like that you know what i mean and i think right. at some point a cluster bomb came in like a smirch something, something like 700 meters from our hq still didn't feel sketchy but bakhmut felt fucking sketchy yeah the ground vibrating at all or what a little bit but it's more it's honestly just fucking annoying like, it's just noise in the background constantly. And, like, you can hear theirs go off. And then you'll hear, you can hear, like, you can tell a triple seven, so, like, a 155 from a 152. You, you can definitely tell the difference in sounds. You can tell the difference in incoming and outgoing. And you can hear, like, theirs coming in. And then you'll hear ours counter battery. And then you'll hear theirs hit where ours were and ours go off, like, from five kilometers away. And you're like, you fucking assholes aren't hitting anything. You're just getting killed. Can you shut the hell up? You know what I mean? Like, it was just, it's just a fucking distraction. You're not going to kill our guys, so fuck off. Yeah, like, they, the Russians love grad, man. Like, they love that shit. That's going off all the damn time out there. I think the day we rolled out, um, the unit had got, like, hit at the range with, like, a full salvo of grads. Fucked up a couple of their cars. Nobody got injured, though, which was nice. Um, the, that night, when we were going to bed, we had grad hit a couple kilometers away. Like, there's... It's always going off. So, it doesn't surprise me that, like, if the Russians see triple sevens or something moving through a drone, like an Orlan or whatever, that they're just going to blank in the fucking area. Can, can you tell me what a grad is? So the BM-21 Grad is like the the classic Russian rocket truck with the, the big rack on the back with like 40 rockets. It's like two rockets a second or something like that. And they hit, it's kind of like a checkerboard, you know, they hit like a checkerboard pattern. It's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, one of, it's one of those things you know it when you see it for sure. Yeah, like to me, it's just yeah. like quintessential Russian technology. You you see if you like like looked at the footage you've definitely seen one of these things firing off before you you see these in the Ria Novosti like videos of uh, and like Russian like propaganda videos. Oh yeah, Russia time. loves these fucking trucks. They, they yeah they they love like they love like showing like a high they love showing like a good 4K quality footage 
like video of these things firing. They really do. And like, you know, it's a, I guess a cool system, but if you compare it to like Western MLRS systems, multiple launch rocket systems, like HIMARS, like you can just tell it's, it's a different fucking century away. You know what I mean? Yeah. The whole thing about like, like, um, being matched in capabilities. I, I don't see it. I like, I think China even has better tanks than Russia right now. Like China's, um, new main battle tank is like really nice. Yeah, I'd agree because I think China is not stupid, right? Like they're a nation that is very realistic about their capabilities and where they sit in like the geopolitical space. I think unlike a lot of, I guess what you would call hostile nations, they're very generally grounded in some sense of fucking reality. Unlike the Russians who are, I don't know, addicted to throwing bodies at a problem until they somehow solve it and think that's a good W. Right. And like, this kind of just reminds me, it's just kind of something I think about a lot is kind of how like arduous and kind of fucked like Russia's geopolitical situation is, despite like quite literally being the biggest nation on planet Earth. There's like this kind of constant need to expand out of modern Russia just because of a, a lack of, you know, uh, just ports in their country that aren't frozen over like eight months out of the year. That's the thing about borders, right? Like um, back in the day, they used to just have like territorial maps, you know? And it's like the, the whole point of like having all that being in a border, it's like, you're not using it. Like, like what's <laughs> the point? What's the point of drawing a line around it, dude? when you look at some of the early days of the war, there were like a lot of these kind of thoughts going around that like, well, the only reason Russia is like, you know, committed to the war in Ukraine is to cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea. And that's, that's definitely part of the reason. It's definitely not the only reason, but a lot of their geopolitical factors are like driven by where can we get a warm water port, you know? Russia doesn't even want to be in Russia. Speaking of which, speaking of which, think about this, about like, um, you know, when they're doing conscription and everyone was running away, I was just thinking about it the other day. It's like, that's really beneficial for everyone to run away for Russia, because now they have all these Russian citizens in neighboring countries doing Russian shit. Well, it's like when all the the mobilization happened and everybody went to Georgia. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, now you look at the Georgia, you look at the Georgia protests that were happening, right? And there's all these Russians already there to counter-protest. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have let that shit fly. Especially, like, having been a country that was already hostily invaded. Like, I'd be like, no, go fuck yourself. There's the door. Here's some water. Turn around and walk home. Yeah. I'm just saying, I think Russia, you know, didn't really care those people were running. I don't think they did. But then the mobilization didn't work out, and I think now they're realizing, you know, I think that's why they're making a lot of those changes. But I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, right? I'm not like a military strategist by any means, but I don't think like any amount of idiots you mobilize is going to make a difference. You don't have, there's been so much brain drain. There's such a, like a educational deficiency. There's a lack of free thought or critical thinking, it seems like throughout the general populace, like there's just this, it's not a country that I see 
no matter what you do, you can mobilize the whole damn place. It's just mobilizing pawns, right? Like Ukrainians are smart, they're inventive, they're free thinkers. They think for themselves, they think on the fly, they make shit work. Like they're like Cubans to the extreme. So I just don't the, say. The, the population of Russia is also just like at this point in time, like I remember this being a problem when I was very young and it's an even bigger problem now. Their population is so fucking old. Like. Yeah, and now they've killed it's, off yeah, whatever percentage yeah, of the young guys, it's, right? It's like, age, it's aging. Like it, it was, it was again. I'm, I'm again. Demographic issues are kind of something I, I don't buy into like too much, just because it can be kind of hard to tell like where demographic shift will come from, and there, these like demographic models are often predicted wrong. But that's something you always hear about constantly. This is, I feel like this is something. This is a point that's been repeated for like the last twenty years. Russia's population is old. Russia's population is old, etc. Uh, but there was there was a thing I did want to ask you. Um, you 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 were you were uh, involved in training, and you were training with a lot of like Ukrainian units in in different medical, like T triple C type courses, things like that, right? Yeah. So. Uh, you you probably encountered a lot of different units in your time there. You you would say like you encountered a lot of a lot of different like uh, units of the Ukrainian military and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. Um, I How... wish like I got a patch from everyone because then I'd be able to remember them all. Because right, it's hard to remember all these different numbers. You know what I mean? <laughs> like... Right, right. And, and, and as you know, in like the U.S. and Canada, you know, different different units of of, of the of of the army of like the navy etc are all kind of known to have kind of their own like uh their their own cultures kind of for better or worse you know their own like group culture military culture team culture etc yeah. how would you say like it, it differed in ukraine because th that's the thing we kind of notice about these conflicts that kind of catch a lot of people's eyes is that like you look at these different units in in, in the war in ukraine on both sides and you you see these like really you know, almost like completely different uh, uh, groups. So it's like on 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 in Ukra on the Ukrainian side, for example, you've got like, you know, I'm just naming two like extremes here. Uh, you've got like Azov, and then you've got like, which is for people who don't already know, that's kind of like a like a far right Nazi battalion, who are very limited in number. And then you've got like the Sheikh Mansour battalion, which is like a b battalion made up of Chechens. So how, how, how did you notice, I'm, I'm sure you were interacting with people who were f definitely more in the middle, but how did you just kind of notice like the cultural like shifts between groups and whatnot and how, how they interacted and stuff like that? All right, let me start with the 72nd Mechanized Brigade. So these were the guys we spent about a month with. Uh, they're the guys that have been fighting in Vuladar. Um, the brigade, the battalion, brigade medic, when we got there, is a guy named Victor. And Victor is the first openly gay soldier in the Ukrainian military. He started the uh, Instagram page LGBTIQ Military. That's his organization. Um, he's been a huge reason for the societal changes towards those, like the LGBTQ community over there. He's a fucking professional 
in medicine, a professional in combat, it's kind of incredible, right? Like Victor is like a fucking hero to me. Um, I didn't know his backstory or any of that stuff when we first met him. When we first met him, he was just a medic. He was just teaching us, um, taking the knowledge that we had, developing a course, like a training program for us to teach us soldiers. And then in his downtime, he was teaching whatever knowledge he had to soldiers, right? Like there was not a moment that Victor sits down for Victor. Like that guy is go, go, go all the damn time. And culture wise, nobody in the unit judges him. Nobody treats him fucking differently. Nobody looks at him wrong. You know what I mean? Like there's no infighting about shit like that. It's not a fucking problem. It's, they're all one team, right? They're all on the same team. They're all fighting for the same thing. At the end of the day, like Victor's dropped five orcs on patrol with a fucking RPG. So he's more of a man than most of us in this goddamn chat, let alone most idiots on the internet that want to say some shit about him being gay. You know what I mean? And then like, Makes perfect um, sense to me, yeah. I believe the commander of the unit we were working with, or the commander of the battalion, so not the brigade, but the battalion, I'm pretty sure he was Muslim. Um, really incredible guy. Like, smart. He had really, really good conversations with me. We went out for a day just uh, to go, you know, get to know each other, grab some coffee, discuss plans, and, you know, learn more about each other. And, like, not only does he speak all the languages that are needed over there, not only is he an incredible leader for his men that sought out, right? We didn't find him. He went and found us because he wanted the training for his soldiers. He wanted more for his soldiers than he was able to get. And he did everything in his ability. He was paying out of pocket for rent. He was pulling as many strings as he could to make sure that we could stay and help. He got us rifles. Like he was such an incredible fucking leader. And I know there's going to be a lot of people that listen to this that might be veterans, people that have been in the service, and they can say, like, good leadership, that shit's hard to find. And a lot of, like, the company-level leadership over there is fucking incredible. Um, some of the brigade-level leadership is outdated. It's old. It's Soviet. It's fucking stupid. It's ignorant. It refuses to fucking change, and it needs to be cut out like a fucking cancer. That is him? Yeah, it's Victor. Okay. Yeah, I can uh, I can send you his Instagram if you want. There we go. So it's the like he's got the unicorn patch. Yeah, yeah. And the old heads so outraged. Like even today, there is a new thing where there's like a navy ambassador who's a drag queen, okay. and it's like, come on, the navy and drag yeah, queens go like, hand no, in hand. Yeah, who's surprised by this? Nobody who's really surprised. fucking shocked? So I just wanted to maybe hear a little bit more about you know just queerness in the military and things like that, and some hot takes to piss these uh, old heads off well i just i just found it incredible like that one of the most badass impressive professional fucking leaders was also a dude running this fucking organization from a, a group of people that lots of people like to talk shit about you know that a lot of people like to say that they're less than that they can't live up to the same standards as manly men they can't do the same things in a fucking combat role. Prove you goddamn wrong. Like this guy has dragged 
dying men out of fucking trenches under fire many, 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 many times and then saved their lives. He has held men while they've taken their last breaths. He has watched enemies take their last breaths and he has taken the lives of enemies. Like this man raises above all average levels of what you would expect for masculinity and all this stupid shit. You know what I'm saying? Like our, our normal Western fucking principles or understandings of like what is required to be a fucking a soldier and shit like that. It's, it's irrelevant. Like at the end of the day, if you do your job, you're doing your job. Who you are is who you are. It doesn't have to fucking be a whole thing to argue about, right? No, none of his soldiers argue with him about it. He doesn't argue with them about it. Like, and it all works out for the better. So the NATO, they, them army is kind of uh, pushing Russia shit in, in your opinion, or what? Oh, dude, 100%. <laughs> 100 fucking percent like it was so funny to me when he was telling me the story about when there's like these five russians patrolling down this road and they couldn't see them and he came out of the trench with i think a, what they call a moha which stands for like fly and it's the so any like the single use rpgs i think the the 18 the 20 and the 22 are all known as mojas little flies and he popped out with one of those fucking clapped him with it and they were still kind of squirming and clapped him with another one and i'm like man like it's it sucks that they didn't know that they just got killed by the gayest dude in the fucking military because they would hate it. Or any else interesting profiles you want to get into? Um, all right. So another unit that I spent a fair amount of time with was the 81st Airborne Brigade. Um, one of the members, I think like one of the officers in their unit, is family to Oleg, and that allowed Oleg to start bringing them supplies, right? Uh, he firsthand, like single-handedly between Oleg and Josh's supply, I think they outfitted the whole like first and second battalion of the 81st Brigade with fucking uniforms, raincoats, everything they needed. And like we're into like the third or fourth battalion at this point. Um, when I met them, it was day four or five. It was right after we uh, had split off with the group of volunteers from Oleg's hometown. And that, like, to be honest, when when all those guys there left, and, like, we split up and it was just me and Oleg, that's, that kind of sucked. I was like, man, like, these are some of the most incredible fucking people I've ever met in my life, and I don't know when I'm going to see them again. And I was having, like, a little bit of fucking, it's almost like homesickness, you know? I'm like, damn. And then... Uh, it's like, I don't know, 11, 12 at night in Kramatorsk. And we're trying to get directions to wherever the military base is within the next 100 kilometers. And we get directed out there and we're told, all right, you got to park here and then like walk over here. And we're like, oh, okay. So we park where we think here is. Here was not here. Or I guess here was not there. There was there. And so some dude comes walking out of the shadows with a flashlight and he's like, you got to go this way. But he's like, keep your lights off. Don't turn the lights on. Cause obviously you don't want to like drive a car in the middle of the night to a fucking military base with this lights on like, Hey, here it is. So I'm hanging out, hanging out the window of this car with a fucking flashlight on its lowest setting, like at the front of the hood. So like can see the road while we're just like driving through potholes over train tracks, fucking going through this 
backwoods bullshit to this base. We get there, we park, and they're like, don't worry about your stuff. We'll bring it in for you. And they come in and they're like, go into the back room. They go into our office. We've got dinner there for you. Sit down, eat. It's not an option. I'm like, fuck, okay. So we go in and we sit down and uh, Major comes in, the Colonel, um, like all, all the, the high ranks, right? Like the, the fucking leaders of absolute warriors and they're feeding us and treating us like we're special. It was really, really weird, but it was fucking incredible, man. Like, they made damn good food and we had some drinks and they taught me a bunch of Ukrainian swear words and we learned about each other's families and like our history and they asked about Canada and I asked about their lives there and I got to meet some of the most beautiful fucking people in this world. Like the most badass woman I'll probably ever know. Um, some of the most incredible men I'll ever meet in my life and the best part about all those officers was they were all incredible leaders, right? Um, they all cared about every individual soldier under them. Like it was their kid, like it was their brother. All they wanted was their guys to be well-equipped to be able to do their jobs well and come home safe. And it was so obvious the next day when they took us to the range, like they're on top of everybody, making sure they're doing things right, teaching them the most efficient ways to do it. Um, having like a, a medical get together where they get Oleg and I to go over a little TCCC class just to make sure the guys understand things. And then we did like a whole group discussion on best practices on pre-staging tourniquets and things like that. Um, we got to meet, so that rifle on screen belongs to what like the best, um, translation we got was a, a freelance sniper. And this dude owns, uh, that 338. I think there's four of those in the country. And then uh, he's got a 50 cal uh, British bolt action. I think there's two of them in the country. And he's contracted to the government to, uh, he just gets to choose like which AO he's going to go into, where he's going to work, where he's going to have the most effect. And like this guy's probably fucking deadlier than cancer. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's dropped hella dudes. And again, one of the kindest, sweetest, most incredible fucking people I got to meet. Like just a kind smile, normal looking dude, happy to let us shoot his rifles, just wanted us to have fun, wanted to talk. Like it's it's not like they're all fucking obsessed with who they are and like what their job is. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people in the West, uh, we love to like really glorify like the soft community and things like that. People really... Like they live their lives as the job they were. And the most badass people in Ukraine just act like people, right? Like they're not focused on the things they've accomplished or the title they have. They're just focused on, you know, living a life, doing their job, and hopefully getting to the end of this fucking war and being able to live free. Uh, I think that's a huge difference also in the culture between just, uh, especially America uh, and Canada, you just uh, the way our militaries work, it's like, we're not under threat, you know? 
and Ukraine, it's like these are everyday people. You know, there's school teachers that are just killing people right now, and then they're going to go back and teach school. Yeah, yeah, and like all these normal people are shockingly good at it, but they're not letting it control them. They're not letting it ruin them. Like it's it's wild, man. And like to bring us into your home, to bring us into your base in your home, you don't know me, right? You know, oh, like, sure, but you don't know fucking nothing about me. Then treat me like I'm your family. That was fucking wild to me. Absolutely wild. And they gave me a, they gave me a unit sweater from the 81st Brigade. They gave us these, like, issued fleeces. Like, they just kept giving me gifts. And I was like, man, like, stop. You're going to break my fucking heart. You know what I mean? Like, I'm supposed to be here giving you guys shit. Stop giving me things. Like, I appreciate more than anything, like the, I guess like the sentiment of it is like, they're just trying to show thanks and I, I will never get rid of or hurt any of those things they gave me. Like I, I've got one challenge coin in my life and it's from the 81st brigade. And that's quite possibly like the most important fucking thing I own. Can you tell me what a challenge coin is? So challenge coins are definitely something that uh, I think the West probably came up with. And they're usually something that uh, very specific units will have a small amount minted of, and they kind of get traded between in the community. Maybe you work with another unit and you you do a really good job or you make a good impression and they'll, they'll give you a challenge coin. And I was lucky enough to get given one by them and by a, a young 23-year-old lad named Vlad that I had a really, really, really good relationship with. And I don't know if I'll get to see him next time because uh, there's been a lot of staff shakeup at the unit, but that kid will forever hold a fucking place in my heart. You know, maybe some flower picking adventures or butterfly hunts that you did, anything like that. flowers? <laughs> Bro, that let me blow shit up. That was dope. They let me throw a bunch of fucking grenades. I don't like grenades. I'll tell you what right now. Grenades? I don't. I wouldn't fuck with them. No. no. <laughs> fuck those things, dude. They, they seem like such a, like, there's some, there's some, like, actual real life inventions. The helicopter is one of them that comes to mind, but the grenade is another where I'm like, this is like, like a Looney Tunes invention in real life. Like, the grenade is so cartoonish. Just like, I've never thrown a grenade, but just like in my head. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna like pull like a fucking plug from this explosive device <laughs> and chuck it as far as I fucking can and cover my ears. Like it just seems like you know, seems like some shit Bugs Bunny would do. Yeah, no, I don't uh, like them. They're scary. Like they're just like, they feel fucking like the the impact grenades, the RGDs. Like they're plastic, and the shell is like this thin metal. Like it feels like Chineseium. And you're like, oh yeah, let me let me pull the safety out of this and hope the fucking plastic holds together so that it doesn't like go off in my hand and kill me and all my friends. Like, never been in more of a hurry to get something out of my hand. They gave me four when I got to the 81st, and I threw three. And Oleg's like, can I throw one? And I'm like, yeah, please get this the fuck out of my hand. Like, I was so I was like begging him to throw it. I was like, please, I don't want this. I don't like these. I'm not a fan. RPGs, dope. Grenades, not dope. Yeah, I hope, I hope, uh, you know, you got some good baseball skills. <laughs> Fuck it. 
<laughs> no, I suck at baseball. Like, I'm shit at baseball, right? And, like, maybe I just got a bad throw. I find grenades to be fucking heavy, bro. Like, they they got way more heft to them than you would expect. And or they just drop out of the fucking air real quick. I got, and I think part two of my, like, video series is a clip near the end. And then with the 72nd, throwing some grenades. And the camera doesn't pick it up, but, like, when I throw it, you can hear, like, the shrapnel go over our fucking heads. And we all just start, like, nervously laughing. And I'm like, I'm shit at baseball. And that was, I think, the second last time I threw a grenade. The final time, I just did it because, like, everybody had one. But that was when I was like, fuck these things. Like, I'm over this. Like, I've thrown, like, ten. They all want to kill me. I don't like this. (laughs) And plus, when you kill the enemy with them, they destroy the enemy loot drop, you know? That's what I'm saying, dude. But again, counterpoint, RPGs are dope. But... Like, the weird thing, right? Like, the grenade feels heavy. You're like, whoa, this this is heft. Like, an RPG warhead was, like, feather light. And it, like, it just threw me right off. I was like, what? I was expecting this to be, like, I guess filled with explosives, but I suppose it's, like, a shape charge or whatever, and it was light, and I just, it totally threw me off that, like, the whole unit's, like, whatever, six, seven pounds. It weighs less than a fucking rifle. And there's no recoil. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's why you can see like like uh you often like just like when you're kind of looking at a lot of photographs and videos from war zones, you see these like pictures and videos of people carrying like multiple RPG rounds in like both their arms, like like they're holding like two babies or something. In their arms or the backpacks. Yeah. I always thought the backpacks yeah, and you're, were and you're, like and you're like, and you're like and you're like, how the fuck are they carrying that? And then you talk to people who've actually like, you know, been in the military or fired RPGs and stuff like that. They're like, actually RPG rounds are not that heavy. And you're like, really? Like I've I've never like, you know, carried an RPG or even like held an RPG round, but I, that's something I've heard before from from people who have uh, been in war zones and whatnot. My uh, my own father was do did like military conscription in Egypt, and he was saying like RPG rounds are not heavy at all. Yeah, it's it was it really threw me off because like they obviously made me load the whole thing, like they handed me the warhead, and I was expecting my hand to go down, and it just didn't move at all. And I was like, oh, this is weird. And then I was like, I don't like this. It feels chintzy. God damn it! It's the grenade all over again. Like some Russian shit is cool. Like the AK-12 was dope. Um, AKs in general are dope. Every other Russian invention could suck my ass. Like, getting into a BMP2 <laughs> is the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done in my life. They don't, don't make them for ever... comfort. Well, they don't make don't them for people guys, that are 6'5", uh... either. Oh, you're 6'5"? Holy shit. Yeah, dude. No wonder, yeah. no wonder you got all you got back problems. God damn it's it. Be- because everyone knows <laughs> that the Russian military only employs goblins. <laughs> it's fucking true it took me like legit like a minute and a half to like fit down into the gunner's seat of a bmp2 it was fucking embarrassing well i i don't i don't know if you guys ever it's like it's like a video from like the early days of the ukraine war and these these uh ukrainian soldiers had just been like looking through a hideout like a building that a bunch of russian troops were hiding in and they were trying to see if they could like basically snatch up any body armor guns you know stuff that they could use and this guy in the video is is like it's it's obviously subtitled and all that he's like yeah so i came into this building where we just drove out some russians and i was i was looking around at, at for some body armor maybe something i could use and he's like 
grabs this 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 like what what you would think is like a plate of body armor, and he pulls out of the front pocket of the vest a MacBook with a bullet in it. <laughs> I think I might have uh, seen that was that just, one. That's just that's just one of like to this day. Like I, I I think about that video on a daily basis. I'm like, who the fuck it was? Like it just I don't know who's out there running around with a MacBook strapped to their chest. Like, oh, I, like I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's gonna just, break. I don't know. I've like, never I don't so, own a MacBook. Like, what's cheap the fuck? as shit? But. I think I just like, feel like it's gonna flex and you're gonna break the screen. Like, like any laptop I've ever owned, from like the MacBook I have now to like the fucking the the Dells that used to be thick as a textbook, I, I've always you know been super concerned while holding it. Like if I like drop this shit, it's gonna fucking shatter. Who was going into a war zone with that strapped to their chest, thinking like I'm good, this will protect? Like what the fuck? Yeah, like my laptop know, screen got nuked on the way home. I'm just surprised it even made it to Ukraine, to be honest. That's the thing we're going to, I think we're going to look into as far as like long-term funding and sustainment is we're going to probably start like auctioning off or selling trophy items. We've had like a ridiculous amount of quests from the beginning for, you know, like rocket tubes. Like every American and the grandma wants like a law or an AT4, right? So right. I think we, we got to look into some of the regulations. Um, the most common one we've heard is like, you know, a drill, like you got to cut a hole on the side that's like half the diameter of the bore or some shit like that. And it's yeah. disarmed. Yeah. And then I figure once, like, if we can get that sorted out, we'll do those sorts of things. Just encase it in resin. Well, and that's that was another <laughs> thing. Like, um, I've had since the beginning, like a lot of suggestions for like, you know, like resin crafts, paperweights, shit like that. Like take some flechettes and put them in resin or... Um, shrapnel, whatever, fucking bullets. We got a shit ton of fired, expend bullets. You know what I mean? Like, we can get just about anything really simply. Like, we've got uh, a thermal sight off a of fucking Chechen's rifle. We've got like a second gen night vision scope off a of Chechen's rifle. Oh, listen, that's something I want to ask you about, right? Uh, so. It, at the, again, this is a thing that's kind of from the beginning of the war, but people were noticing that, like, the, uh, the, the, the Chechens who were fighting on the Russian side were usually decked out with, like, the, you know, the the designer equipment. They, they got, so they, they want to, this is confirmed by you, they have way better shit? They're way better shit. Way better shit. The Chechens right. are the hobgoblins. And so you don't be seeing the Chechens <laughs> getting killed anymore, and we're not getting nice, fancy night vision scopes gifted to us anymore, I'll tell you what. Right. I, I just remember... All those idiots got much, fucking killed. I don't know much about, like, plate carriers and stuff, but I just remember, you know, when Kadyrov would be posting them fucking videos and shit, I'd be looking at these Chechen dudes, I'm like, they got some They got some nice guns, though. Those rifles oh, yeah, those, they look were very way expensive. Like, way more kitted out. So the best part about those videos is the camera guy is always, like, standing right in the open. In the line of fire or some shit? Yeah. Oh, my lord. I know, I haven't... Like they're after, so like, interested. That's the thing is, it's like they're there to look cool instead of win. After the second, because they third. think that they're like they think they're like the like serious Chechens who are actually fighting on the Ukrainian side. Oh yeah, you know, 100%. like the guys who have been displaced and have been fighting against Russia all these years that Americans are actually afraid of. They think they're that, but they weren't, and they were played up to be that before going in, and then just nonstop. Just all I saw was them getting killed. I see. Where well, the fuck what are they now? Like, where are they? One of the things you, you also you also like uh, a lot of people have pointed out is that when you when you look at uh, 
like a, a lot of the Chechens who are on the Ukrainian side versus the ones who are on the Russian side, a lot of the ones on the Ukrainian side are, are like, look like they're in middle age. You know what I mean? They're like in their forties, their fifties. Whereas a lot of the Chechen guys look like they're kind of young. They just kind of signed up. They look a little green. And that is something I've noticed when you look at like, just like, uh, like videos from the uh, Sheikh Mansour battalion, a lot of those guys look like they're in their forties and fifties. And that they've probably been doing this for a while. Like you can kind of see the wear on their faces and whatnot. So I just, you know, versus it's like, I, it's, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what, I, I don't know who thinks, like who's like Kadyrov's like propaganda attempts, who he thought they were working on. Cause all, all the guys in, in, I feel like in the, uh, in, the, in those videos just looked way too clean cut. You know what I mean? It was just oh, like, I was 100%. just like, you know, I was looking at those videos. I'm like, Bro, have these crazy? guys done like a day of fighting since they You'll got You'll see there? some like, of his videos and the crowd is digital. Oh God. Uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen videos like that too. Yeah, the Houthis yeah. will also do that, but it's way noticeable with them. But yeah, I've seen it a few times where they have a digital crowd. Oh, there's like one famous drone video that they posted like before the war where they show like thousands of them in a square. And it's like, you can tell that like um, they're using like selective shots and stuff. And it's just mm -hmm. half the crowd is digital. More than half the crowd. Did you ever hear the quote? I mean, like, beware old men in a profession where men die young. Or yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's a fucking lot of those guys in Ukraine. Like, there is a lot of dudes that are old and hard as woodpecker lips. There was guys who were, um, like, uh, this is like when we were talking about like, the start of the Donbass War. There's a lot of guys that came in from Georgia. And, like, uh, some of those brigades there is these guys from Georgia that are just, like, ancient. Because they've been fighting Russia for so long. And they'll just oh. go wherever the front is to fight them. That was a, another cool thing is uh, a lot of the guys we got to meet from like the 81st and the 72nd, these guys have been fighting since like 2014. Like Victor, I think he fought like 2014 to 2018 or something like that. And then retired for a bit. And then the full school invasion happened. He was like, fuck it, we're going back. And then I don't think he's seen like his family and shit since. And these would Russian you, kids have zero experience. Would you would you say that it that like did you meet like besides Victor, did you meet a lot of guys who had been fighting in like the Eastern Front back in twenty fourteen and whatnot? Bro, we met dudes that have been fighting like forever ago. Like 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 Soviet Army days? Did you meet any guys like that? Yeah, dude. We uh there was a dude in the seventy second that apparently like been in Chechnya or some shit, like back in whenever. Yep. Huh. So let's laugh, let's wrap up on something here. Right. Uh, I was going to say, you did a great job kind of doing a call to action, call to adventure for people. You made it sound nice. I, you know, so hopefully somebody's mind will be changed on that alone. Oh, it is. It's a beautiful experience. Like, it was absolutely life changing. It cost me a lot, right? And like, I got like a fucked up back now, but I had a fucked up back before and it was worth it. Like, when this all started, and I started Force X, like, I just launched it as a sole proprietorship because it's super simple. Right? It doesn't take any real effort to run that sort of business here in Canada. And I figured, you know, like, it won't be long before 
like a bigger group comes along, somebody else, they'll do what we're doing. They'll have the funding and the money and they'll take over. And we're 400 and whatever days in, and that still has never fucking happened. So now we're, uh, we've got to look at a lot of different options, right? So we're looking at um, ways to monetize through merchandise, whether that be patches, shirts, hats, whatever, the usual things, um, the trophy items, like we talked about, whether that be uniforms, uh, rocket launchers, engraved shells or some shit, um, shot glass sets made out of 40 mil shells, whatever. Um, you want to buy Russian fucking night vision scopes that are stamped with the, the hammer and the hammer and sickle. We got those, you know, like we got all these options. Um, looking at incorporating into a nonprofit. So hopefully maybe there's government grants out there that can help support the mission of training and our team so that the majority of us that have gone all the way into our pockets, whether that be credit cards, life savings, um, investment portfolios, 401ks, uh, family money, selling cars, selling precious metals, if that was something people collected, selling your fucking, your card collection. It's like everybody that I know that's still in Ukraine, that's been working in Ukraine for the last year, almost has nothing left to their name, right? Like that first trip, I think, I spent something like $16,000 between donations and personal money, 16 to 19, somewhere in there. Um, it's not a cheap job to make a difference. One thing you can run into is you over-prepare or you buy like a lot of stuff um, and then you end up giving it away, right? Which isn't a bad thing, but you gotta be prepared for that sort of thing. Like I gave away a lot of rifle attachments that I brought with me when I ran into soldiers that had fucked up shit, like the commander of the 81st brigade, when we went to the range, he gave me his AK to shoot it. And at first I thought I was just like blind or some shit because nothing hit the target. But then we discovered that his red dot was all fucking broken and shooting like 10 meters high up to the left. And so I ended up giving him my red dot, right? My brand new vortex site. Like this sort of shit happened a lot. I gave away three sets of plates, all sorts of personal medical goods, all sorts of personal equipment, that sort, of, that sort of thing happens. And all of us have done that a handful of times. And what we're really looking for now is like a company or a philanthropist or somebody that has like a heart and cares that wants to help support the mission. Because like, we're not out here to make money, right? Nobody wants to be paid. We don't want to be, we don't want to wage. We don't want any of that shit. We just want diesel the money for new training supplies when our like mannequins break down from having a thousand soldiers train on them food which is usually pretty needed ammunition which we've got to buy training ammo simulation grenades shit like that and then supplies to build training compounds and facilities to increase the effectiveness of not just our group's training capabilities but the training capabilities of other groups in country that's the main goal now so, you know, if somebody's listening to this that feels like that's something they want to contribute to, please reach out. We need that help. Real real quick, what are some, just in your opinion, just good organizations to donate to? Where can people find you just to kind of top it all off here? All right, so you can find me at ForceX Canada on Instagram, all one word, or forcex.ca. 
Um, Oleg runs an organization called Forever with Ukraine. It's uh, currently ran by a woman named Tanya in Ukraine. It has about 30 to 40 staff members. It's totally self-sustained right now. It runs all sorts of good for humanitarian missions. It also does all the logistics side for our transference of uniforms, medical goods, things like that. So it allows us to now focus completely on the military while that side does all sorts of humanitarian work and absolutely incredibly, incredibly good work being done by those just normal civilians working there. Um, you've got Brandon, Ukraine TBIC, who's currently doing a media tour in Europe and hopefully maybe North America, uh, trying to spread awareness of his mission since he's been in Ukraine, I think since the beginning of the war, working as a combat medic. Um, there's Task Force 31. They're a training organization that's been in the country since the beginning of the war. They're incredible. Project Siren. They supply night vision devices to Ukrainian special operations forces. Not only are they incredibly professional and kind people, but they're incredibly supportive. They've been there for me and my teammates, my friends, a lot of times when we needed them, whether it be emotionally, financially, um, help with a, a, a plan for a mission, help finding a vehicle, or vice versa. The Project Siren is absolutely incredible. You've got Dark Horse Benefits. They've been providing medical training and medical supplies to the Ukrainian forces since the beginning of the war. Dynamic Acquisitions, um, it's a one-man show. He's got other team members in America, but he's been one guy, um, a SWAT officer, training CQB tactics to soldiers in the country since the beginning of the war. So these are just like a handful. And I've met all of these people in person. They're, they're all vetted. They're all absolutely fucking incredible. Uh, if these are all anything that somebody that's listening wants to help support, those are, those are incredible options.